Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Lucas Marino. And if you haven't heard about Lucas yet, he's been on at least, I think it's this is the fourth time. So the first time, we took a dive into leadership. The second time we took a dive into level of repair analysis. And what was, I forget even what the last time was. Do you remember what that was? No, I, I think this is number three. Okay. This is, this is number three then. Either way, last time we spoke, Lucas, just before we jumped off the pod, Lucas mentioned that he didn't know a lot about me and he wanted to jump into it. So today We're doing a flip-flop. So Lucas will be hosting this pod and putting me to the test. So I'm a little worried about that one. (laughs) And I sent him zero questions (laughs) for the record. Yeah, we didn't didn't do too much prep for this one. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. And right now we'll turn it over, Lucas Marino. Thank you very much, Rob. Hey, so this is a pretty cool opportunity for us to get to know Rob uh, a little bit more. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's a, it's a, it's an even better opportunity to take the aggregate of all of the interviews that you've done with all these people around industry. And you've captured so much from all these different people that you're like a little treasure trove of information right now. And I think it'd be great for us to learn a little bit more about how after you've done all these podcasts and after you've interviewed all these people and all the work you've done in reliability and maintenance, how it's impacting you and how it's impacted your view on the, on the industry. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I guess I would start out with how have you felt about the journey you've been on with reliability this last year? Does it feel like, you know, you still, you still have that thirst as a lifelong learner and where has it taken you that you didn't expect it to? I guess I'll jump in with this one and say, you know, one of the primary reasons I started the podcast was because I felt like I had kind of stopped learning or, or like my learning curve wasn't very high. And so it was, it was like starting the podcast was a way for me to talk to experts in whatever I wanted to talk about and really pick their brain with the questions that I wanted to ask. And so it's been really exciting. And actually, you know, for me, my happiness level, my engagement level, all that stuff has really come like jumped up because of, you know, like talking to people like yourself, Bob Latino, I don't know, Ricky Smith, Nancy Regan, just a bunch of these people that I probably wouldn't have talked to otherwise. Right. Wow. 
and and I'm I'm sure that uh, you know, much like the rest of your listenership, you know, every every time you interview one of these one of these you know fantastic guests, um, you know, you just walk away from it with a not only a new relationship uh, in 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 the industry, but you know, just this new respect for the for the discipline of of reliability engineering and 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 what it does for its users and the people that really embrace the tenets of reliability engineering. Um, how how have you felt that's changed the way you function as a reliability engineer? I mean, I I think that it, it comes back to what we've seen is is everyone has different experiences and they see the world through kind of a different lens, right? And, but, but I mean, the core tenets of what we've talked about on this show, regardless of if we're talking about artificial intelligence or root cause analysis or RCM or whatever, have really come back to, it's a people game and culture and engagement are where we really need to focus on. And so a lot of what we're talking about, like, yes, we, we do dive into the details. Like you talked about level of repair analysis and we were talking about that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, how do we implement that is really going to drive value. And, and the implementation part of the game, it's all people driven. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think some people um, external to engineering have this pre- preconceived notion that, uh, you know, engineers of all different types um, struggle with the people side of of uh, of things and the business side of things. And I found that 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 isn't necessarily true. I mean, I think I think most engineers are more you know in tune with the people side of of the industry than than they get credit for. Although they don't get as much exposure to it through their traditional education or experiences as a junior engineer. And then once they once they get into a a position where they have a team around them or they're in charge of a team they're they're feeling their way through that and it's it's exciting you know i i i i hesitate to ever uh bite off on the assumption that they're just wired to not be uh, people people you know <laughs> I, I never bought into that i never bought into that do you feel the same way i mean it depends right like i've talked to i talked a little bit about this with uh fred Schenkelberg, which as we're recording it, it's going to come out tomorrow, but it'll be out on April 2nd. So by the time you're listening to this, it'll be out. It's called The Art of Reliability. And, you know, like Fred's background, he's he's got a math background. I also have like a very technical math background as well. And, you know, we, we probably fall on the scale of introverts kind of nerds, right? Right. And so for me the people side is something that I had to really, or I've recently started to really focus on because like, because of what we've learned, right? Like the people game is important and, you know, you can sit in your office and do modeling, which I am want to do, but at the end of the day, you have to implement it. And if you don't implement, what have you really done? Like you've done some fun stuff and you've learned stuff, but you don't actually get value out of the project. Absolutely. I would have to say the nature of the work drives some engineers in that direction, right? That, that's a that's a really good point, Rob, because we're, we're, you know, engineers are kind of forced to, I don't want to say be alone, um, but they're forced to do a lot of independent work um, through their education. And then, you know, they do some projects and stuff in school. But then when you get out in the field, you know, a lot of it is you and a computer. You're right. You're absolutely right. 
and all that modeling and sometimes simulation and you know design work. I've found that a lot of our design engineers are the ones that are probably more in line with that, um, you know, assumed identity of an engineer, at least where I've worked, uh, the design guys who were kind of left to their own in a, in a cubicle <laughs> fit that mold pretty well. Whereas the other, the other engineers who were forced out into, um, you know, working with maintenance or working with uh, crews or working with teams to, to resolve things in the sustainment side, um, tend to tend to have a little bit more exposure to leadership and and teamwork. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I mean that's the that's the thing, right? About reliability is if you're doing it right, you're calling on the subject matter experts that are not yourself. So those are going to be your maintenance people, your safety people, your operations people, and you really have to connect with those people to get what you need from them. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true, man. Very, very good point. That's a solid point. I mean, could you imagine trying to be a reliability engineer and not communicating with people? I just don't see, I don't see anyone succeeding in that role. I mean, I'll, I'll give a, an example of this project I'm on right now. Yeah, we're trying to do uh, reliability analysis for all these different types of systems on, on a ship. And, you know, the reliability engineer, he, he hasn't had to work on on those types of systems. And, um, you know, so, so if, if they're not out it, talking to the, to the people that are in the, in the organization that have experience maintaining those systems or, you know, truthing some of the assumptions that we make in the reliability analysis, then, then they'd be, they'd be turning over a garbage product. So yeah, now it's super important. Very, very strong point. So when you look at the teamwork aspect and reliability engineering, do you think that there's, there's more that we could be doing to build that competency in our younger engineers? To me, I think it's just practice and it's just focus and it's just understanding that that is a critical aspect of your success. I guess one of the examples is early in my career, and it's probably one of the more successful projects that I've been on, was we were doing, we were trying to do some risk analysis on these large mining engines. So for people listening, the Cummins QSK-60 and the MTU-S4000. And I had to bring uh, mechanics onto my team and they were both from the OEMs. And these mechanics, they had worked with these engines for 20 plus years. And, you know, like you needed their expertise because uh, like I was fresh, I was maybe one year or two years out of college and I didn't really know much about, you know, these specific engines and their application or anything about them. And we got really in depth into them. I was learning about different parts, what what kind of parameters we should be looking at. This was before kind of where we are now with the IAOT, but we were looking at those data streams. And it was really insightful for me. And also like you're learning to connect with a guy who's, you know, he's 30, 40 years in the industry and you, you really have to, like I, I came in, I have MIT background. You're trying to say, oh, I'm really good at math, but he doesn't care. He, he's a guy who's wrenched on equipment. Like you got to connect with him somehow. So we ended up talking about baseball and stuff. So it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a great, uh, that's a great story that backs that up. I mean, we we tend to have um in the maritime industry we have a lot of um 
of a of of workers that have been you know have a lot of tenure in the companies um they don't tend to leave and um and and they have so much to pass on to the the newer engineers and you know we like we stick them together on purpose so they can share some of that knowledge which you know when i was when i was in my studies knowledge management was a huge thing and the, and the transfer of knowledge from one person to the other so that you don't lose that knowledge when when you're when your workforce either retires or moves on to something new um that's a, that's like a significant concern in industry did you see that a lot where where you were working the transfer of knowledge you know i mean it, this is a good example of it but did you see did you see a lot of that in a coordinated fashion um in in the in the positions you've held well, so what I've done a lot throughout my career is translate expert knowledge into some sort of expert system or rule system. So that's kind of been what I've been focused on. But I mean, more recently, like on the reliability consulting side, it hasn't been something I've seen. And you go to these plants and you talk to their, like you're walking around with their mechanics or their lube specialist or their reliability engineers. And it's something that it, they're not really focused on, but they kind of need to be, especially now when we talk about like skilled trades and how we're not pushing as many younger people into them. It's going to be something that is, should be a focus that we really need to understand coming forward in the next few years. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, Taking a taking a person and putting them through trade school is, you know, just just laying the the foundation, you know, skill set wise for what they're going to have to do to actually become a a person in that industry, you know, or that field. Um, and until they get out there and they get to interact with people that have been in their in their field for you know several years, and they actually learn that there's an art to their craft. And they learn the art side of it. You know, that's that's when it all well, that's when it all clicks, and they become a, an actual tradesman. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's something that, like, the more that you stay in your career, the more you understand. Is and I say this with reliability a lot too. Is the technical aspects of reliability, like what you want to learn. If you want to learn failure modes, you want to learn RCM. You want to lose learn root cause analysis. You want to learn uh, any predictive maintenance tool. That stuff is easy. You can pick up a book, you can talk to somebody, you can watch some videos, whatever. It's fairly simple. I mean, it can be complex, like if we're doing advanced math, but relatively, it's fairly simple. The hard part is a few things. What do you apply? What, what tool do you apply when? And then how are you going to implement it? How are you going to convince people at different levels of the organizations with different experiences to buy into your idea and execute on what you need them to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to see people actually like intentionally like do that, <laughs> right? Not just wait for it to happen is always one of the things that's kind of gotten me. Uh, you know, like we, we can, we can stumble on these things and hope they happen or we can be intentional about them. And, and uh, I know that you're the kind of guy that believes in intention and, you know, building those processes and building those uh, those rules that that that's where that happens. Um, so you've had you've had a chance to do all of these things in, in several different industries. Uh, did you feel that what we think and say about reliability being applicable, you know, 
across the board um, in, a, in a fairly consistent manner across different industries is true? Or do you feel like there's a lot of customization when you move from something like mining into working in like the lubrication industry? Well, so through through the last, I guess, five years or so, when I was working in the lubrication, but we were also doing some reliability stuff, I probably visited, I would say, 40 to 50 different plants across everything from shipping marine to power generation to mining to industrial plants, like stuff that they make like uh, either paper and pulp products or chemical products. And the more you you go through these plants, you, you realize that one is the equipment is fairly similar. So a hydraulic tank is a hydraulic tank is a hydraulic tank. The second thing you learn is the people are fairly similar. Yes, they may have like different cultures, like, you know, one of the car manufacturers I went to, their culture was significantly different than a mining culture. But if you sort of spend, even like spending one day with them, you get a feel for what their culture is. And then the next four or five, 10, whatever, how many ever days you're there, you can really adjust to how you see that they perceive the world. For me, I, I don't see that as a concern. I like I do think people are people and processes are processes. So if you follow the process and you understand the culture, at least to a level that allows you to speak to it, you, you'll be fairly successful as a reliability person. Yeah, and I think I think, you know, you, you're hitting on a good point there where if you stick to the you know, I know you're a big football fan, too. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge football fan, but you know, the fundamentals are so important, you know, and if you really nail down those, those fundamental processes and, and applications, um, you know, regardless of what industry you work in, I feel like you can, you can, you're, you've got a good start, you know, you've got a really firm foundation. If you can, if you can get those fundamentals in, in place. Um, it always seems to me though, that like reliability teams are some of the smaller ones, you know, regardless of the size of the of the of the facility or organization they're working in, do you see that as well? That that you know, that there's some of the smaller niche teams in in the organization. Yeah. So when I started at Tech Resources, so the coal large coal mining operation in Western Canada. Well, I mean they have other mines, but I was working in Western Canada. We were producing, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million to 30 million tons of metallurgical coal per year across, I think it was around five mindsets, either five or six. And they had, each mindset site had one reliability engineer on the mobile side and one reliability engineer on the plant side. And then at the head office where I was at, there was my boss, me, and another guy. So very small, like relative to a maintenance department, which you have, you know, all the mechanics plus the foreman, plus the supervisor, plus the maintenance manager, like relative to those where they were spending over, you know, it was roughly over a billion dollars in maintenance in annual spend. You have like 10 reliability engineers. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's small. And, you know, like a lot of sites, they have one guy and you're the reliability guy and that's it. That's crazy. I mean, and I, I asked that question because of my perspective coming from the maritime industry, which is, you know, so it's it's similar but dissimilar from 
many of the industries you've worked with, and I don't have nearly the breadth of coverage that you have in the industry with, you know, working with mining and different production and, and everything. So, you know, I always find that fascinating that some of the more valuable key players are some of the lower numbers. Um, and, I, and I get that that's, you know, it's relative to the, to the organization and what they do in, in, in a way. Um, but, you know, like for example, where I work, my lead uh, reliability engineer is on another continent. You know, he, he's not even in North, North America. And I'm like, I'm talking to this guy on, on uh, British time, you know, so we can, we can make sure we're, we're, we're driving and uh, our meetings are, you know, always interesting because it's morning for me and afternoon for him. But uh, yeah, I, I always wondered what it's like in some of those other industries. So I appreciate you sharing that perspective. So, you know, you've had a chance to work in all these industries and you've also had a chance to interview a lot of people about emerging technology and emerging methods and, and new ways to look at things and innovation. Do you feel like reliability engineering is still kind of on that forefront of, of innovation in these industries? And where do you see them, you know, where do you see reliability going in like the next 10 years? I see like the people I talk to on this show, they're on the, well, they're on the forefront because they're working for these companies uh, like Petasense, Uptake, uh, Cortic, you know, they're, they're people who are on the forefront of technology. They're using more artificial intelligence, machine learning because they've developed the products, right? In terms of mining and, and all these other industrial plan applications, we're starting to see it. So when I was, I was at a couple of mining customers, um, they're starting to use machine learning in their operations, but it's like very fringe right now. And it's only specific, a few specific companies themselves. And a lot of them actually, instead of partnering with a company like the ones I mentioned, they're developing it in-house or they're doing something like that, which is an interesting approach. But for a lot of plants, I mean, like you, you mentioned it and I've hammered it a bunch of times. It's we can't even get the fundamentals right. So how can we sit? Like it's it's that video I shot last week and posted it on Rob's Reliability Project LinkedIn was about Jenga. It's like a lot of these people, they're trying to apply artificial intelligence or machine learning, but we don't even have the fundamentals right. So how can we even do that? Like if we don't know how to plan and schedule, we can't even do basic fundamental maintenance. You know, if if we can't do that stuff right, how can we apply artificial intelligence to it? Like we're just going to be like, we'll get 500 alarms a day and we won't, we'll just be inundated with stuff. Right. Yeah. Look at all this data we've collected and we can't do anything with it, you know, or when we do something with it, we do it incorrectly because we didn't master the fundamentals of the analyses, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's like, for me, the longer I've been in, in my career, the more you understand is if you could just do maintenance right the first time, like if you could buy the right equipment, if you could keep it in the warehouse like correctly, if you could install it correctly, a lot of your problems disappear. And that to me is true reliability is the problems disappear. There's an alternate universe where you would have had a failure, but because you did everything right, it's never there. 
And that and that's one of the reasons why why the departments are so small is because if you're successful as a reliability person, they don't even know. They don't even know what you do. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. You know, I that I guess that's one of the the benefits of 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 working in reliability engineering uh, on the side of the fence I work on. Like right now, I'm in an acquisition effort. You know, we're doing a major contract for a, a DOD partner where we're, you know, we're designing and building a ship. Um, you know, so we're doing a lot of like building reliability into the design, building reliability and, and ma- maintainability into the, into the vessel, building all of these, um, building all of these maintenance packages before the, the product's been realized so that, you know, we're kind of setting it up for success. But, you know, your, your point is, is huge because, most of the places that apply reliability are applying it in the sustainment of assets, you know, during the, the management of assets, um, when they're out there running equipment, doing things, and they're trying to, to adapt over the life cycle. Right. So yeah, if they're doing their job, right. You know, (laughs) or properly, you may, it may not be as pronounced. That's, that's a really good point. And that's, that's one thing we, we talk a lot about in reliability is this thing called the pendulum of reliability. And so what it is, if people are listening, is you, you have a site, you're experiencing a bunch of failures, you hire a bunch of reliability engineers, you implement a bunch of projects, you're successful, the failures start to decrease. And within, you know, like it's a probably a long time, but the failures decrease. And then you have a department of 15, let's say 15 reliability engineers. Then your value is way less because the problems that you're solving are very small. Then you get a new manager. He goes, Hey, these guys aren't providing a lot of value. They cut the department or they cut from, you know, 15 to one guy. And then the problems start to come back slowly. And then within five years, you're back to where you were in the first place. It's something that, you know, we as reliability people, we have to, you've got to hammer that value home. You've got you to market yourself internally, but it's difficult, right? Like even something that's obvious where we say, like, let's say we, we have a vibration reading and we, we go out to the whatever the equipment is, we fix it. It's still difficult to convince people that you actually, like that there's an alternate universe where this thing would have blown up. Right. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we actually have to, we had that challenge when I was, when I was in the Coast Guard supporting vessels, uh, relaying the impacts and values of, of our maintenance programs um, at a strategic level so that we could get them you know, them being the the senior officers to understand that you had to invest in these things um, in order for them to succeed. You know, we, we we looked at reliability, you know, through through similar metrics. You and I have talked about that before. Um, you know, they're real big on A sub O in the Coast Guard for assets. Basically, what's the availability of the asset? They're not even looking at its system specifics. Uh, they're, they're, they're relying on the engineers to do that. So we were able to present the number of, of casualties to equipment, you know, corrective maintenance actions, the reduction in, in corrective maintenance actions is, and the increase in A sub O was a way, a way for us to kind of project the value of what we were doing. Like, hey, look, you, you haven't 
not have the equipment when you wanted it. You know, it's it's been there. Now, here's the cost of what it's taken to get it there. Um, and you can see how much work goes into that. But we we made a conscious effort to involve our operational commanders in all of the conversations about corrective actions on ships when it came to like the strategy. Like, you know, we, we made it a point to talk about that so they could understand how much was going on behind the scenes to keep that asset um, at such a high level of operational availability. And that, and that's like a great example for it, right? Is that's internal marketing. And it's something that if you're an introvert like me, it's hard to do, but you have to do it because people need to know not only the depth of what you're doing or the technical knowledge that you're bringing to the table, but also like how you're applying it to the problems that they have and solving those problems. Yeah, we, we tried to make it like a standard report that we were reporting out on a, on a set periodicity in a set way so that it just became expected. It became part of the culture of the operator, trying to ingrain it in them. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. So like when you think about, all right, so now you've got, you've got young engineers coming into industry through different routes like mechanical or electrical. You've got, you've got people coming into the industrial engineering complex. You know, we've got them coming in at lower numbers than we did traditionally, but they're still coming in. And schools are actually trying to, at least from what I've seen, they're trying to, to push uh, a little bit more of this application in the en- engineering programs because it's more attractive to future students, right? So do you feel like it's inevitable that we're going to have more of an emergence or not emergence, but convergence of the, the IT and non-IT type electri- electrical engineering and mechanical engineering is just going to continue to further drive closer and closer together. And that because of that, reliability engineering is going to adopt the same, become part of that club. I mean, at least in the military, we had that, this constant emergence of, you know, advanced electronics. So our mechanical guys and gals were forced to adopt more of a knowledge mindset about that and become smarter on it. And then what ended up happening was it just magically worked its way right into our culture. And before you know it, when we're doing Famicas or we're, we're trying to do corrective maintenance actions, our, me- our mechanical-minded folks are troubleshooting the electronics to a certain degree. Um, do you feel like that crossover between like mechanical and electrical or mechanical and electronic, do you feel like reliability engineering is able to keep up with that technology curve and that you know once we have those fundamentals mastered, we can, we can really get into like keeping that integrated engineering perspective alive and and we can keep up with that? I mean, I think we have to. Like, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, learned machine learning on the internet, right? Is I think that these technologies, even if you don't, like you're never, like I'm not going to be an expert in data scientist or expert in machine learning, but if I can go out and try it and use it, I can form my own opinions about how I want to integrate it with what I do. And then I can therefore be like, at least I can talk about it in a way that's sort of knowledgeable. And I think that that's what you're going to see. And also, you know, like technology is changing and you kind of have to keep up with it. You know, even with you guys in the marine industry, like one of the ships I was on a few years ago, 
the the engineer was proud to say that this was like a 1940s World War II ship engine, right? But that's right. <laughs> how many? How many? For how many more years are those types of engines going to be in the equipment? Like, eventually, we're going to probably move into some electrical thing. Like, you look at all the Tesla vehicles now. Mm-hmm. Like, technology's got to change. We have to change with it, and. You know, it's it's just like the stuff that's sort of fringe right now. Like, do you have an uh, Alexa or do you have a Google Home or do you have a like a voice activated thing? Like we, we need to try these. We need to test these. We need to experiment with them because eventually they're going to be used in our plant and we, we have to be able to adapt with that. Yeah, your, your example of that um, 40s technology, you know, engine is is fantastic because i was just speaking to some to some some leadership in in um in one of our partners uh last week and they said well how are how are we making a concerted effort to to drive cbm um on this on this vessel and i just kind of smiled and told them well you know it's funny you mentioned that a lot of it was done through equipment selection because you know, the days of being able to select equipment that didn't inherently have that built into it are changing. And now when you go to buy a piece of equipment, uh, at least in, in our industry, a lot of it is coming with um, CBM equipment already inherently built into the design. You know, if you get that main propulsion engine from the 1940s, that thing didn't, didn't feed you data. It fed you analog signals, right? <laughs> you were like, great. Thanks for the, you know, lube wall pressure reading and the RPMs and, you know, got it, check. But now when you buy that, that uh, same engine manufacturer's output, um, you're getting a computer with a proprietary, uh, you know, connector to, to, to sync up and download all this performance data. And, and we're having to build our CBM programs a lot of around a lot of the outputs of this new software that um that is we're just we're not planning for that it's being delivered to us by the by the equipment manufacturer you know we don't even really have a choice anymore you know try buying an engine that doesn't talk to you like that that's a large diesel it's just they're they're almost not non-existent these days so that's a really uh prevalent thing for us in the maritime industry i don't know if that's if you're seeing the same thing across other industries well, I mean, you start seeing it more often now, um, even large equipment, like what I've seen, at least in the industrial plant side, is a lot of them are coming installed with like oil sample ports or uh, some of them even have vibration sensors or temperature sensors. When I started in mining, the large trucks, they came, this was in 2011, they came with 300 sensors that were already pre-installed on them and nobody was doing anything with the data. So that was something that we wanted to tackle was how do we get this data off the truck and to some place where we could process it and learn from it and flag stuff. Like, you know, like you'd still get the the alarms on the dash, like, oh, your engine shutting down because you have low oil pressure, but the rest of the sensors weren't being used. And now I just don't think you'll see that too much anymore. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, you know, hand in glove there, you know, the equipment comes to you with all this capability, but now it's up to the organization to really learn how to capture and harness that, that information so that they can extract the most value from it. 
that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, if you if you don't do it internally, your OEM's going to do it and sell it back to you. So the, you got two options for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's so that's always been a point for us when it comes to the so what do we want to do to maintain this thing after we buy it, right? Like, do we want to pay OEM to come in here and and just be, you know, almost fully responsible for everything that happens to this thing to sustain it? Um, because they'd be more than happy to sell you that that support package. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So, hey, let's let's take a left turn real quick because um, I know I know the time is short. What do you think is the coolest thing that you've learned yet? Like, I mean, it, and I know it's a very open question, and, but there's always like those aha moments, you know, when you, when you speak to someone that's on top of their game and you've spoken to so many people that are on top of their game and I'm not going to ask you to point out particular individuals, but you know, is there any aspect of, of your interviews or, or the, or the discipline of reliability engineering, you know, all the stuff you've done to, to learn more about it this last, you know, few years, what's really jumped out and been like, man, that's cool. Like that's the coolest thing I've heard in a while. Anything like that kind of jump at you? Well, so one that it's the podcast isn't out yet, but it will be probably by the time you're listening to this, or if not, it'll be out shortly is I did an episode with Tim Ingram about using blockchain technology to share reliability data between not only organizations, but also the OEMs. And I thought that was really cool, really interesting. And it's very fringe, right? Like blockchain technology right now is like, it's even beyond artificial intelligence or machine learning in terms of the amount of people who are using it. Yeah. But I mean, for me, the the interviews, I'll, I'll give you a few I mean, everyone has been great and like I've, I've enjoyed talking to everybody and I'm sure I'm going to miss people, but I really liked a few of them. I really liked, I really liked talking to Ricky Smith about spare parts. So he talked a little bit about like, it's not the, it's not the calculations. It's not the EOQs or that kind of stuff. It was about what do you do? when the part arrives at your facility and you got to store it because it's something that I've seen done so poorly throughout my career and there's so much value in it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. So that was one. And it's like, it's fundamental stuff. It's easy stuff, but you have to do it right. Another one. I mean, even last week, uh, Adam Streddle was on the podcast to talk about precision alignment and it's, I, I literally, before I spoke with Adam, I knew next to nothing about precision alignment. I knew that you had to do it, but I didn't know how to do it or anything about it. And that to me, it's another one of those basic things, the fundamental things that you have to do. Because if you if you put it in and you didn't align it, it's going to fail a lot sooner. But if you do it right the first time, it'll it could last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and it's amazing how many people don't understand what doing it right means. Yep. <laughs> they think they got it. I mean, I was talking to, when we went, I was at the Marcon, I was speaking to a gentleman um, that, uh, you know, he was like, oh man, you know how many people have just slapped a dial indicator on something and um, and then they call it good and they walk away. And I'm like, yep, I've been watching that for 25 years. <laughs> you know, 
it's a it's a it's an art you know alignment's a science and an art oh yeah for sure and it's like something is like you align it to you know triple zeros when it's cold but you turn it on and then the thermal expansion happens and you know you're you're way misaligned it's it's something that you just have to understand it and how it works and and do it right yeah absolutely very cool and um you know i know that we're planning to see each other uh possibly up here in in um in winnipeg Yep, in Winnipeg. That's right. Yep, I was. My brain was thinking Edmonton because I was just reading something on Edmonton this morning. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna go up to Winnipeg, and that's gonna be awesome. Yeah. What's that? I uh, say so I'm in Edmonton, but yeah, no, I'll see you in Winnipeg June seventh for the Asset Management Manitoba Summit. That'll be fun. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited about it, and uh, I believe this is the first one they've had, right? Yep. Yep. Suzanne, uh, she's putting it on. Uh, we'll get more details about that shortly. Yeah, that's going to be really cool. I mean, we're going to be fortunate to have Bob Latino up there. I'll be there. You'll be there. I mean, it's going to be great. And I can't wait to talk about asset management. Um, and I think that I think it's really healthy for us as maintenance and reliability professionals to keep on the forefront of what's happening with asset management. And, and there's a lot of bleed over right now. I think a lot of people are probably innocently but incorrectly calling one the other um and they definitely have a, a strong relationship but i think it's important that we keep pushing the value of reliability engineering and management um up into the asset management conversation because really that's part of that showing the value uh, that you were speaking of earlier and uh, i can't think of a better way to do it than to put a bunch of us knuckleheads up on stage to talk about it <laughs> no, I, I mean, asset management to me, it's sort of taking reliability to the boardroom. So it's something where a lot of us in reliability, like we don't talk about risk. We don't talk about, like, we don't talk about risk enough. We don't get to that. Like, what's the profitability? What's the safety? Like some of that stuff, we don't get into that enough. We We spend a lot of our time focused on, well, the vibration was this, the oil sample had... 40 ppm of iron, blah, 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 right? Like equipment stuff. But in order to really make changes and get the buy-in and the support we need from management, plus the money we need, we have to take it to an asset level, uh, organizational level. We have to talk about risk. And that's like what the CFOs want. That's what the CEOs want. And I see there's a lot of correlation or I guess, like overlap between reliability and asset management. But to me, it's like, if you're a reliability engineer, learn about asset management and start applying it because it'll help you sell your reliability ideas. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Um, you know, I started as a mechanic and uh, worked through the, you know, diesel engine mechanic uh, line there. And then, you know, they kept in the military, they just push you, push you, push you to, to keep moving up or they just push you out eventually. Right. So, um, basically they pushed, they pushed me right into that strategic level organization you're talking about where asset management resides. And, um, it was invaluable to have people with that maintenance and reliability background in those discussions. And they would, we would intentionally assign people with those backgrounds into positions where, 
asset management was happening so that we could have a mix of experiences and inputs and insights in the room when we were talking with, you know, let's say the two, two or three star admirals about how something works. But it also, one thing I don't want, I don't want to escape people is how much value you have in that room, not just because of your experience, but because of the perception that your asset managers have of the depth of your knowledge as a maintenance and reliability person. They know that you know so much about that equipment. They love having you in that conversation. So just learning how to interact with them to the point where it's like you become a welcome part of the team and your input is, is valued. That, that's huge. That's huge. You, you're, you're hitting on a really good point there, Rob. Yep. And I, I got a hard out, so we better wrap this one up. Yes, sir. All right. Well, Rob, thanks, thanks again, buddy, for, for, for letting me talk talk to you and ask you questions. And it's been great for me to be able to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. No, I appreciate you coming on. And, and I hope I hope everyone listening got some value out of this one. I had a fun discussion too. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in June. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And uh, we'll speak again very soon, I'm sure.